Would you pray with me before we look into Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? My Father, we know that many people at this time of year are indeed running on not much energy and they're easily distracted. Many of us, Lord, are our minds are racing with so many things that we're trying to do. And so I pray, Father, that your spirit would help us to have ears to hear, that we would understand, Lord, some of the great truths that you want to help us ponder today, that the gospel might cause, Lord, each heart to not only be humbled before you, but to also find joy and peace, enduring, lasting, mind-boggling, indescribable peace that this world cannot give. And so, Father, do your work, we pray, through your Spirit. We pray that, Lord, your truth may literally set people free. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We come this morning to the final name of the one promised in Isaiah chapter 9, in this wonderful prophetic passage. And this title we're looking at this morning is Prince of Peace. If you have not been here, I encourage you to go online. You can listen to the previous sermons, which we've looked at the four other titles given to Jesus the Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and this morning, Prince of Peace. Now in the Hebrew, the word translated here is Sar Shalom. Let's all say that, Sar Shalom. Very good. You know Hebrew. Look at that. You're, you're experts already. The word sar is used to refer to a chief, a governor, a, a master, a general, a prince, a ruler, someone who's in charge, someone who has authority. And this messianic ruler that's been promised here in this text is a ruler who will be characterized by peace, by shalom. Now his reign is going to bring about peace. When the Hebrews used the word shalom, we have to ask ourselves, what did they have in mind when they used the word peace? We, we translate it peace. Sometimes it did convey thoughts in their mind of something that would be indicative of prosperity or, or some sort of health, perhaps. But one scholar, George, Dr. George Morrison, suggests, and I thought it was a helpful comment, he said, it's helpful to think of shalom from the Hebrew point of view as the possession of adequate resources. That if we have the possession, if we possess adequate resources, in a sense, we have, we're enjoying shalom. And used in this way then, shalom is another way of saying wholeness. Things are not incomplete, they are complete. We have everything that's necessary, needful. If you think of the Messianic ruler Jesus Christ, he has come to bring about wholeness. Now, let's not forget, of course, where this prophecy of Isaiah 9-6 fits into the overall flow of redemptive history. We know that God created everything in the universe, including the earth and all of its inhabitants, all that it contains, and we read in the first opening pages of the Bible, page 2 of your pew Bible, we read these kind of words. After God created the birds, the sea creatures, and every sort of animal, God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule. What are they going to rule over, these people that God is to make? 
because God himself is ruling. He is the one who's going to reign over his, the people he's making, and then they're going to rule over some realm. They're going to rule over all the forms of life that God had just created. So then God created both a man and a woman. He blessed them, and the first, past, first chapter of Genesis says, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then the chapter ends this way. First chapter of the Bible ends with these words. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was not just good. It was very good. In a sense, you could say, the first chapter of the Bible begins with shalom. It's very good. There's enough. It's the way it should be. But we live in a world today where the wholeness that God originally established has been shattered by sin. Because, as you know, if you keep reading in the story of redemption, you know that after that first chapter, two chapters later, we have those original folks refusing to live under God's rule. And we have joined with them and every other person who's ever lived, all of their offspring, all human offspring. We've all chosen to continually experience various levels of guilt and shame and fragmentation and fear, and no more is the shalom of God the experience that any of us have. And God sent Jesus the Messiah to restore the shalom that he had originally established. And Isaiah then promises that this messianic rule and reign would result in wholeness or shalom in three different relationships. And that's where we're going in this message this morning, is the three different relationships that have been broken because of sin. We're going to see how does Jesus address and bring about shalom out of the brokenness in those relationships. And so our first point this morning, Jesus is sufficient as the one who is the Prince of Peace to deal with our sin. And so he brings wholeness with God. Now we have seen so many advances in medicine and technology, manufacturing. I mean, I, I, I'm old enough, I'm thankful to have been able to know my grandfather quite well uh, until he died uh, in 1986. And he died at the age of 98, so he was born in 1888. And so I heard him describe what life was like for him before there were automobiles, before there was an electric light in his house and whatever, before there was refrigeration. He talked about taking the ice off of the uh, Susquehanna River and uh, storing it, and it would be there till July 4th, use it, whatever. And so I remember hearing him describe all this advancement that has ma been made during his lifetime. I sat in his living room and watched uh, Armstrong come off of the uh, the lunar module onto the face of the earth, and he just reflected on, oh, wow, how far we've come. And yet when you think about all that, that amazing advancement in technology and medicine and manufacturing, yet we have dishonesty and greed and pride and theft and impurity and selfishness and rebellion continually are bearing witness to us that despite all of these advancements, Human hearts are out of sync with the God who has made us. We have lost the shalom that we need before the God who made us. And all of us, all of us, myself included, we all worship someone or something other than God. 
We anchor our lives, our security, our significance to someone or something other than God. And that's why Isaiah pointed out later in his massive prophetic book, in chapter 57, he says this. He tells us why we lack shalom. He said, there is no peace for the wicked, saith our God. You say, oh, come on, man, I'm not that wicked. I mean, look, you know, I'm talking about wicked people. How quick we are to turn and try to compare ourselves to someone else. But if you compare yourself with God, in whom there is no darkness, that is, there is nothing sinful or corrupt or evil in him at all, then you have to admit we fall far short. In many ways, every day, all of us have broken God's laws. Without exception, all of us. All of us lack, shal- lack the shalom because we are alienated now from God. Our sin stands between us and a holy God. And that there is enmity that exists between us and God. There is no neutrality of anyone in their relationship with God. Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. And Colossians 1.21 says that this enmity exists. There's a sense in which we want to be our own God. We want to do our own thing. So we push against God and defy his authority and his right and reign to rule and reign. And none of us is capable of bridging the gap between us as sinners and the holy God who made us. Therefore, as lawmakers, none of us can restore the wholeness in our relationship with the lawgiver. And therefore, as sinners, we desperately need the one thing that we can't find for ourselves, and that is righteousness. To be a person who is right before God. And therefore, we need to be rescued from the wrath of God, which we face because of our rebellion. And yet most of us think that's the last thing we really need. We need many other things that's the last thing we ever would pursue. It can be compared to a man, suppose, who has been involved in an automobile accident. His leg is twisted out of its socket. His bone is broken, perhaps in several places. And he tells the doctor, suppose this, he tells the doctor, listen, doctor, give me a sedative, give me some meds, and just take the pain away so that I can just be at peace and be at rest. Give me the drugs. I just want to sleep. I don't want to have to deal with anything else. Leave me alone. Just give me the drugs. Now, at that point, we could say the man, we understand pain is difficult. We understand wanting medicine to take the pain away. But is that going to solve his problem? If his leg is hanging out there, broken in several places? But he's acting like a fool at that point. He just wants the pain to go away. He doesn't really want to be whole. He just wants to feel comfortable. There's a big difference. And millions of people are seeking the opiate of peace without righteousness before God. The doctor in this situation must set the fracture of that man. He must put that leg back into its socket and put the cast on and line those bones back up so that it might be healed. Only then and only after that will this man move toward wholeness. Will he move toward shalom? No true healing in his life. 
One reason for the inner frustration of so many of us as people is that the peace and joy that we're seeking is a peace and joy that is without righteousness. Without the righteousness of God, there can be no peace, and without the peace of God, there can be no joy. Jesus is the only one who can supply sinners like you and me with wholeness in our relationship with God. It is only by placing our faith and trust in Jesus and his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the grave that we can find peace with God. You see, his death on the cross was expressing to us or showing to us the payment that he made for our sin. His resurrection was showing that, indeed, it is proof that the adequacy of his payment was enough. Jesus died in our place so that God could impute our sin onto Christ, the sin-bearer, and that Christ then, his righteousness, could be imputed onto us and onto our account. Colossians 1.20 says this, God reconciled all things to himself through Jesus, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through the shalom of the blood on the cross. See, God graciously bestows to everyone who receives by faith the free gift of salvation in Christ, the blessing of judicial wholeness or shalom. At the bar of God's justice, a Christian will hear who is trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not guilty. And every believer enjoys the privilege of being adopted as a child of God. And no longer is this animosity, this enmity between us and God. There is peace, there is shalom, there's wholeness. And my friend, I would just say to you, do not doubt the good news of the gospel. Rest in Jesus' finished work. Find the shalom in Christ that you were made to enjoy. Take Jesus at his word. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I urge you, bow before Christ. Repent of your sin. Admit that you no longer are going to attempt to be God, but you want Christ to be the Lord of your life. Your goal is to serve him, to love him, to receive the benefits of what he's won for you on the cross in exchange for you and him receiving all of your sin. He is the master of your life. And the gospel declares to us that every sinner who believes in Christ is therefore set apart and is beloved by God. They can enjoy the wholeness of what it is to, to know the true God who made you for himself. Stop all of our attempts to gain your own righteousness by self-improvement. That's part of repentance. You turn your back on all that. You come to Christ. You enjoy the liberating wholeness that he provides to us through the Prince of Peace. He came to reign and rule in righteousness and to give to us a righteousness that we never could find on our own. So Jesus is sufficient to deal with our sin. Praise God. But I would also want us to consider that's the vertical dimension of this great need we have and lack of wholeness. But there's another dimension. Jesus is also sufficient, point number two, to deal with our anxieties and our fears our anxieties and fears. We're talking about an internal sense of wholeness that we lack, so many of us. Wholeness within ourselves. 
Many of us lack this experience of wholeness in our own hearts and minds because we live each day in the grip of fear and worry. By trying to control the situations around us and trying to to somehow control the future or to try to achieve an outcome that we strongly desire, anxious thoughts are constantly attacking us and robbing us of the kind of joy and contentment and peace and shalom that God has made and designed us to know and enjoy. Worry is like doubting God and His ability and willingness to provide for us. And many of us have anxious hearts because we have forgotten who God is. We've forgotten who Christ is. Jesus spoke to His disciples in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And he said to them a very interesting phrase. Perhaps you want to look this up, page 1283 in your pew Bible, John 14. Jesus, knowing that he's going to be leaving, so the situation is going to be dramatically changing, the things are going to go from not not too bad right now, but it's going to get much worse, he knows, in the short period of time after he is crucified and after he then is raised from the dead and, and ascends to heaven. He knows things are going to be very tough for his disciples. And he says this, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When we are filled with a troubled heart, an anxious heart, a fearful heart, then we are not experiencing the peace that Jesus desires and has said he would give to his children. Now, Jesus clearly is not alluding to a peace that would involve a trouble-free life. Because we know that his disciples faced severe persecution for their allegiance to him. It was Paul who was beaten and stoned and flogged and maligned for the sake of Christ. And he did not panic. He did not give up due to fear. He and his fellow apostles ministered in the strength that God supplied through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God, who's given to every believer, the Bible says, teaches us to trust not in ourselves, but in God, who is able to use whatever the difficult circumstances we're facing, whatever it is that you're afraid of in the future, God can use that situation to draw you closer to himself and to draw you even into deeper change and transformation of becoming more like Christ. Inner wholeness, that is shalom, is never automatic. It comes as a result of transformed thinking and what we believe and what we're saying to ourselves, how we evaluate our situation. It comes as a result of that process by which we believe that God is with us at all times. It is granted to us as we actively cast our cares and our concerns and our worries on Christ moment after moment in prayer. Isn't that what the Bible says? Many of you, I'm sure, would hopefully know this verse, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. If you don't know that, you should look it up, 1398 in your pew Bible. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Such incredible words speaking to us about what the Prince of Peace, how he wants to work in our hearts and lives. Maybe this is something we should be setting as as that toward which we're aspiring in the new year. He says, be anxious for nothing. That is, stop worrying about anything and everything. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what's being guarded there. He doesn't guard you from economic difficulties. He doesn't guard you from problems with your children or problems with your spouse or problems with your co-workers. He guards your hearts and your minds. Many of us have minds that are bombarded. They're under attack by anxious thoughts that are constantly robbing us of a calm soul. But listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. That's a good verse to write down and meditate later on. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. The steadfast of mind, you, God, will keep in perfect peace. So this is God keeping a person, person in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you, God. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. We have stability. We have security. We have a place that's not going to change and someone that we can rely on no matter what happens. The worst of our fears. God promises shalom to those who trust the King, Jesus, who know that Jesus' kingdom is going to prevail, it's going to be coming into place, and it, indeed his, his will is going to be uh, made known. Oftentimes we're robbed of God's peace when we're neglecting to meditate upon the Word of God. We're sort of operating on autopilot, just going through every day, not meditating on the Scriptures, not reflecting on who God is, not thinking through what God is trying to help us to remember and to be aware of. And so we've adopted a, a mindset, a, a viewpoint, a perspective that says sort of God is off onto the sidelines. He's not right here in my life. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have what? Peace. So that what he's teaching them, what he's speaking into their lives, that's where you're going to find the peace. Not when everything works your way, and not when life goes your way, and everything's coming into way the way you've organized it and planned it and plotted it and whatever. As a matter of fact, we need to cast our cares upon him, the scriptures say, because he cares for us. That's a very humbling thing to do, isn't it, for those of us who like to be control freaks? We like to have everything well thought out, having everything work out just the way we wanted, just the way the outcome we were looking for, just the way we've tried to plan and plot and what we've always dreamed would happen to accomplish what we really want. It's the opposite of saying, what, I'm casting this care before you because I'm not in charge. You are. I'm humbling myself by doing that. We must leave these situations that we worry about with God. What is the situation you're worrying about today? Are thoughts like this going into your mind? Things that you have no control over and yet you're worrying and stressing and getting all worked up over them anyway? Things like, how are my kids going to turn out? You can lose many a night's of sleep on that one, folks. But ultimately, ultimately, you cannot control that outcome. Will I get Alzheimer's? Whew, man, I tell you, I was with my mother a week and a half ago. You spend some time with some older folks, you've got a lot of thanks, things to be thankful for that you still have your mind. So many people who, as they live longer and longer, either have Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, it's 
incredible. Will I get Alzheimer's? What will happen with the economy? Some of us are still sweating over that one. Will I ever get married? Will there ever be an anthrax attack? Terrorism, all those kinds of fears. Or a shooting somewhere. Will my dad come to know the Lord? Will my mother come to know them? Will my kid come to know the Lord? Whoever. Will I have money for next month's bills? Ouch. January is always a, a, a heavy time for many people. Obviously, we have good reason to be concerned about all these things, but guess what? As David Pallison says, we have better reasons to take them to the person who loves you, who has given himself for you, and who says, I am with you. And therefore, I'm at work in you in the midst of whatever you're facing. So you learn to trust me. It really does have to do with surrendering and submitting to the sovereign hand of the Prince of Peace. We like to be God. We like to be in control. That's why the quote in your notes there, Elizabeth Elliot, I thought has very interestingly put these thoughts together. The peace of God means the absence of conflict with the will of God. It means harmony within, conquered with his purposes in our lives. Are you facing a challenge to submit yourself to the truth of God's word, to be in subjection to the Prince of Peace and his will as revealed in the word of God? The Bible says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Been thinking about trying to illustrate this principle, and I've come up with a thought from years and years and years ago when I was a little kid. Our family every summer would go down to see my grandparents who lived in Suffolk, Virginia, which is a town west of Virginia Beach. And so we'd head east while we're down there visiting grandparents, and we'd go to Virginia Beach. Now, I grew up in West Virginia, we didn't have beaches, didn't have ocean, so this is a big deal. And so we're there, and I'm a small kid, and if you've ever swam, Swam, swim, swimming. Have you ever gone swimming in the ocean? <laughs> Whatever it is. Uh, if you've ever been swimming in the ocean and you're in a place where there's significant waves, you know the power of those waves, particularly for if you're a little kid. Now, I knew how to swim, but I was quite small. And I can still remember standing there waiting for one of these big waves just to hit you. And there were times I didn't, even, I didn't even realize they were going to come. I kept thinking, oh, you get one, that's it. And here comes another one. And I remember being knocked down to the sand on the bottom of the ocean and unable to do anything, out of control. Here I am trying my best to swim, and I, I mean, I thought I was going to drown. It, it was just a mere second or two, I'm sure. But next thing I know, my father's hand grabs me and lifts me up. And from there on, I was before that, I was petrified in the ocean. But then I began to relax and enjoy this incredible experience because I knew what? I knew my dad was standing there, and when the waves hit him, it didn't bother him. He didn't knock over. He was standing in all those waves. And I realized all my fears have now subsided because a loving father of mine would lift me up, and he was with me. So therefore, enjoy the ocean. Enjoy the ocean. So I think that's a, a, an insight for those of us as we think about why are we so anxious? Why is there such a lack of wholeness, a lack of shalom in our hearts? Remember, who is there? Who is with you? It is Christ, the one who loves you and lift you up. 
I easily could have drawn this to a conclusion at this point, having talked about a vertical sense of wholeness and also a sense of internal wholeness that we lack. We could say much more about both of those, but I want to move real quickly now to a third aspect of wholeness that we lack, many of us lack, and that is Jesus is sufficient to deal with our enemies. Our enemies. This is talking about wholeness now we need and desire for with other people. Now, I'm aware that when we talk about Christmas, for many people, it's not the Norman Rockwell approach. It's a nightmare. It's people who hate to be with each other, being stuck with each other, oftentimes when people are at their worst. Now, I don't have that in mind today. I don't know what you're thinking about when you think about that. But listen, we all know that it's difficult to deal with other people. Is it not? There's a lack of wholeness, (laughs) a lack of shalom in relationships. And those of us who have peace with God, that we have seen Jesus transform us through the gospel, and we are now reconciled to God, and we now are beginning to experience the peace of God that's now operating and reigning in our thoughts and our minds and how we deal with everyday life, then my friends, the scripture then says, if that is true of you, you've known a vertical peace and you know an internal peace, he says, you need to see the gospel then begin to work that out in a horizontal piece, shalom. Jot these down. I didn't put these in your notes. I'm sorry. I had a problem the other day with with producing the notes. So here it is. I want you to jot these verses down, and you look and see if this doesn't point you to the the emphasis I'm making. This is not me making it up. This is Scripture speaking. (coughs) Romans 12.18. Romans 12.18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. (coughs) Romans 14.19. Romans 14, 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Shalom. (coughs) Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men. And finally, 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11. 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11. Whosoever would love life and see good days must seek peace and pursue it. Am I trying to emphasize something that's not in the Scriptures? Not at all. This is very clear in the Scriptures. The question is, why is unity, why is oneness with other believers so important to God? Why is God so concerned with this whole idea of shalom and wholeness with the other members of the body of Christ? Isn't the gospel mostly just this? No, it's this plus this plus this. That's true wholeness. Because we, as the people of God, represent God. The one God, the one and true God, who exists in three persons who live in unity. Eternal unity. And any time there's a fragmented body of believers who are not connected to each other in the ways that they ought to be, that God designs them because of the gospel, then therefore we are misrepresenting God and the gospel of grace. I don't know how many of you are puzzle uh, people, but I brought an example of the old jigsaw puzzle, 500 pieces. This particular one is all kinds of teacups and tea saucers, and it's very difficult because they all look alike, and it takes you forever, and this is not my thing. I don't do puzzles. I just do the outline border, and then I walk away. So that's all I do. 
I let other people like my wife and others who are very skilled at this, uh, let them sort of haggle over these little tiny pieces and figure it all out. But if you know, if you've ever labored over a puzzle, how many of you have ever put together a jigsaw puzzle that took you a while to do it? Okay, good number of you done. You put together that puzzle, you're looking for the piece that has one of those little out things, right? It has a couple out at these, and this one goes out, and this one goes in. And this one's a flat side on this side. So I'm looking, where does that go? And the point of the whole endeavor of a puzzle is what? Putting the pieces right where they belong, right up against the other one, so that they, what? They lock together. Because that's what a puzzle does. A puzzle is meant to be what? Put together into a wholeness. And how many of you have gotten to the point where you've put together a whole puzzle and you, every, all the pieces, and you get to, and what? You got two pieces. Or one piece, the proverbial one piece. Uh, where is that? Can't find it anywhere. You look all over the place and you realize it never was in the box to start with and nobody wrote it on the box saying, don't do this puzzle because it doesn't have extra. Anyway. So you're saying to yourself, oh, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be what? Complete. I want to put that last piece in. The same thing is true in the, in the kingdom of God. We as the people of God are meant to be what? Joined together like those puzzle pieces, locked together, expressing and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ with each other in a way that shows forth the shalom we have with God is a shalom we enjoy with each other. You say, oh, that sounds really good. We like that. But my friend... It does not mean that we become people who are just putting up with anything and everything, capitulating to moral wrongs, capitulating to things that are, are injustices, just for the sake of, of, of maintaining some sort of peace at any price. That's not what we're talking about here. The reconciling grace of God shown to us in the gospel is a grace that calls us to live in the truth, and a grace that calls us to humble ourselves. It leads us to what? Toward a unity in Christ that says what? I am a fallen, broken person who needs the grace of Christ every day, and therefore I would need to extend that same grace to another broken and fallen and uh, uh, sinner saved by grace who also needs to know that gospel. And the gospel helps us admit that we're imperfect. The gospel helps us to admit that we're blind to our faults, that we need forgiving grace every day from God. And the gospel then empowers us to give up our rights so that we can, what? So that we might follow Christ who gave up his life, gave up his rights, who extended to us grace so that we might be reconciled to the God who made us. And the gospel empowers us to apologize. The gospel empowers us to admit when we're wrong. The gospel empowers us to say the difficult things we need to say in order to say what? I have been, I have been done wrong, I have had a bad attitude, I have done things that are improper, I just want to ask you to forgive me. I want to have us where we're good on good terms again. Because I want the gospel to be clearly lived out in our midst. You say, oh, well, I, just, I wish I could just have that in a box I could open up. Just make it happen. Automatically. It doesn't happen that way, my friends. We must take responsibility to initiate the process of restoring peace. It makes no difference if you are the offended one or if you are the one who is the offending one. 
Whoever you are, whichever side of that equation you're on, guess what? The Bible is calling you to take action, to start the process. Matthew 18, real quickly, calls us to initiate the efforts to restore peace. And he says, if your brother or your sister offends you, and then most people then start reading this and they think to themselves, yeah, they've offended me, all right. I'll tell you exactly what they did, too. I'll tell you the play-by-play. And then they did this. And then after that, they did this. And then they didn't do this. And what? And most people then will follow the approach and say, well, I then must wait for that person to wise up, to figure out all their obvious faults and wrongdoings and things that they've done to offend me. They know sure well that they've done wrong. They know da-da-da-da-da. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to wait for them to ask me for forgiveness. And Jesus said what? Jesus said, no, you go to them. If your brother offends you, you go to him. You say, but, no buts. If you, want whole, if you want wholeness, if you want the shalom of God to work in your life, then you've got to humble yourself and start moving in the direction of what's the most difficult thing to do. And you do so with a desire to win your brother or sister. And the text says that the peace process is not automatic, it's not convenient, it's not the easy road, but it requires the grace of God and the love of God to go to someone who has sinned against you and to leave yourself vulnerable to a further offense. But the goal, my friend, is noble. It is worthwhile. It is for the sake of the glory of the one you claim. For the sake of the gospel, we go. Now, I'm just going to put a parenthetical thought here. I'm going to drop a seed here that is an advertisement. I hate to say it's an infomercial, but it's an advertisement that says, if you have never attended a class that we offer during the Sunday School Hour called Resolving Everyday Conflict, I am begging you, I am pleading with you, I am admonishing you, you must attend that class. It will be offered early in the year of 2014 in our church called Resolving Everyday Conflict. Even if you've gone through the class, you need to go through the class again probably because you need to learn biblical principles of exactly what I'm saying here so that we can enjoy what? Shalom, wholeness, the kind of horizontal uh, appropriateness of what we are called to experience within the body of Christ. Sunday school class, 2014, resolving everyday conflict. You got it? It's what God wants you to do. Because let's be honest, we all need help in this area. We all struggle with it. And even those of us in leadership need to go through that class again. And how we counsel people. If you're a parent, you need to go through that class. If you're anybody that's, if you're anybody, <laughs> if you're breathing, if your mind is still operating, you need to be in that class. I'm serious. And if you have one decent excuse, show it to me, and we'll give you only those who give decent excuses, we'll give you a pass that says you don't have to go. Okay, all right, anyway, that sounds like law. Okay, what's the point here? Let's, let's summarize this thing. Let's land this plane. The shalom of God will never begin until you've resolved a vertical relationship with God. Too many of us are trying to patch up human relationships and we've never gotten right with God. Too many of us never experience internal shalom and peace. Why? You've never submitted yourself. You've never come to Christ. You've never confessed your sin. You've never, ever embraced Christ by faith. I call on you that today, my friend. Today is the day. Bow before Christ, the King of kings, and find in Him a righteousness that you need desperately. And then there's, if we understand that, my friend, the, the, 
being able to rest in God's sovereignty and God's promises, being able to know that he is indeed with us will give us internal shalom. How many of us want to grow and get out of this stuck rut of being anxious and worrying about everything? To what extent are you willing then to feed your mind and to pray about more and more what's dealing, what you're dealing with in your life? And lastly, if we understand the shalom of God in our relationships with other people, make it your intent to say, Lord, make me a reconciler. Make me a person who is a peacemaker for your sake and for your glory because of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again to you with heavy heart. Oh, how my heart, Lord, is so heavy as I've thought about these truths this week. How I pray that you would help me to live them out, Father, that I would be less likely to worry. I'd be less likely to try to control my life and to be my own God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me with the own relationships that I struggle with sometimes, being the initiator. Lord, we all have areas that we sense the Spirit of God wants to do a mighty work of change in us, that the gospel is to be lived out, that the Prince of Peace is to be honored among us, not just singing cute songs about a little baby born, Lord. We want to see the powerful Prince of Peace work in our midst in powerful ways to show a changing of hearts, of lives, of relationships, Lord. This is my prayer. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who's never taken that step, I pray that they would come to Christ before the day ends, that this would be the time they encounter the true and living God through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.